0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Bloomberg Westminster, on demand via the Bloomberg Business app and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Boris Johnson meeting European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. Yes, over a little bit of lunch that we've heard so much about, snails, salmon and cheese in Luxembourg. Uh, Johnson's going to be pushing hard for a Brexit deal, but he will also apparently reject any further delay to Brexit.
1: Yeah, it's the same old line we're hearing. We don't want the backstop. We will comply with the law. But the UK is leaving on October the 31st. The line is very clear as far as the UK government side is concerned. Juncker was a little bit more reserved. We'll see, was his response. But isn't this the best form of trolling from the government over or from Brussels rather? Yeah, sure. We can talk about a Brexit (laughs) deal. But first, eat snails.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, well, we also get, of course, um, uh, an actual press conference between Johnson and the Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Bettel a bit later on. So yeah, let's see how that lunch went down.
1: Yeah, lots more to discuss, though. It's the Lib Dem conference. We're over in Bournemouth. We've got Bloomberg's Alex Morales. He's over there. We're going to sp- speak to him shortly. And we're also joined by Oliver Patel. He's the manager of the European Institute at University College London. We're going to get all the analysis of these talks between Johnson and Juncker, aren't we? Uh, but first, should we get to Maria Today? She's over in Luxembourg. We're all over the place tomorrow uh, today. We've got this covered, haven't we?
2: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, though, I want to get in a little bit of sound ahead of that. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab saying that he is confident a Brexit deal can still be done if the EU is serious and has, quote, political will to secure an agreement. Have a listen.
1: We need to test whether the EU are really up for a deal because the detail has been shared, the contours of a deal in a package are there, but now it requires political will on the EU side rather than this bureaucratic computer says no approach, which we've seen for too long. Oh, so some uh, mixed messages from the varying positions, I suppose. Political will on the Brussels side. There's some tall accusations there. Let's get to Bloomberg's Maria Today. She's live in Luxembourg. Maria, I guess the obvious question is, are we going to get any sort of breakthrough?
3: Hi, good morning. Essentially, uh, this is what we have. Uh, the Prime Minister is actually meeting uh, Juncker and Michel Barnier, who is still uh, leading the negotiation, and he would be one of those to that's no, I guess, uh, in the eyes of the UK delegation. He's always said the deal is really pretty much done. If anything, you just look into the political declaration to get some kind of leeway. Now, the Europeans will tell you that they haven't really seen any progress, that they do feel this is just the UK government talking to itself ahead of a general election. They haven't seen the level of detail they would expect from a country that is about to leave the European Union come what may in a month in terms of a potential breakthrough I think the bar is very very low and if anything the expectation the hope is that the meeting today will serve to accelerate negotiations on both sides for the Europeans are running very behind schedule when you speak to the British delegation here in Luxembourg they'll tell you the message from the Prime Minister will be very clear he's not going to ask for more time and he's not going to accept any more time if He's given an extension on the uh, October 17th summit.
2: What about this softening of the idea of potentially putting, uh, instead of having a backstop, having the line be in the in the Irish Sea effectively? It, it, uh, the, so the backstop basically allowing um, goods to free flow between Northern Ireland uh, and the South without checks. Is that, is that possibly getting any closer? Well,
3: in terms of the European side, they haven't actually commented on this or actually said that this is a, a, an alternative, that it is viable and is doable. One of the things they've always said, and really this is something they've said even when Prime Minister May was in office, is that if this was so problematic and really the backstop was the one thing preventing this deal, they would be happy to look into other alternatives. But the conditions uh, to that have always been very clear. One is that they have to be seen or, or, or be legal, that they have to respect the four freedoms of the European Union and that is of course a reference to uh, the single market and it has to be operational by the time Brexit actually happens when you look at what's being pitched around the Europeans will tell you a it's really not the level of detail that we need there's all kinds of regulations that need to be uh, looked into this is not just a broad big idea we really need to get into the kind of bureaucratic details that maybe some in London don't like and it needs to meet that criteria, and we haven't seen that yet and if you look at the Irish government. Well, last week they said, we're looking and we'll be happy to look at those alternatives. But the problem is we're still very far apart in that issue.
1: We heard from the Finnish prime minister who said that the EU has to accept that a no-deal Brexit is going to happen. Will the EU let that happen?
3: Well, I think this is uh, actually very interesting. And I think this is something that I've heard in Brussels for many, many weeks now. The idea that uh, no-deal Brexit used to be very scary, the idea that everyone wanted to stop a no-deal Brexit, but now you have more countries that just come out to the idea of her come around the idea that essentially this is a possibility and it could happen. Nobody knows the extent of the damage or the implications that it could uh, have on the European economy at a time that's actually very tricky for the European economy. But this idea that it would be very scary, that you have to prevent this at every cost has actually changed in Brussels. I think there is fatigue that has kicked in. I think they also believe that This negotiation hasn't actually gone the way they expected, and they do feel that it's now a possibility you have to take it seriously. You don't want to be seen as pushing the UK out of the uh, EU, and that is the blame game that everyone kind of is keeping an eye on. But if it happens, I don't think many would be surprised.
2: Okay, Bloomberg's Maria today live in Luxembourg for us. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Let's go over to Bournemouth, shall we? The other big event of the day, the Lib Dem conference taking place over there. It's been eventful. We saw the former Tory minister, Sam Gima, defect to the party. It spurred mixed reactions there. Bloomberg's Alex Morales is in Bournemouth. Alex, thanks for joining us. We've heard that the Lib Dems are aiming for 100 seats. That's quite ambitious, but they're only polling a few points behind Labour. How realistic is that, really?
4: Well, it's really hard to say. No one wants to make any predictions in, uh, in, in politics, in the UK politics at the moment. But um, certainly the, the prediction of or the, the aim for 100 seats is based on they think all they need is a swing of one or two percent in, in a number of seats across the country. And they can they can portray 100 seats as a realistic aim for the elections.
2: Okay, 100 seats. I mean, all of that thanks to all of these defectors from both the Conservative Party but also from Labour. And in fact, just within what the last hour or so, uh, I know that you and others there, other delegates there, uh, were hearing from Chuka Amunna, who is a defector from the Labour Party, and he gave a very pro European message. What did he say?
4: Well, he 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 was he said we we need to be unapologetic in our pro-European views in this party, um, and and he then trumpeted the the policy that the party adopted formally yesterday, which is if they go into a general election, the Lib Dems will do so on a platform to revoke Article Fifty, that is to cancel Brexit altogether. And they say that if if that's if the result of a general election is a Liberal Democrat majority, then that's because people have voted for this revocation, and and so they. they they argue it's not undemocratic, which is the accusation that's being levelled at them.
1: But isn't that quite unlikely, though, that they get a majority? Surely they can say what they want.
4: It certainly seems highly unlikely that they'll get uh, a majority. I mean, they've got 18 seats at the moment uh, out of 650, and uh, six of those are due to defections from other parties. So those seats were won by Labour and the Conservatives in the 2017 general election. Um, so, yes, e- even 100 seats leaves them far short of being in government. So... In reality, this pledge looks like one that they probably won't have to keep.
2: Okay, so then uh, things looking slightly more muddled in that case for the Liberal Democrats uh, because they also want a referendum uh, and they're only going to reverse Brexit, if I understand it, if they actually get a majority in Parliament. So, you know, we've been concerned about how muddled Labour has been, uh, you know, perhaps deliberately so with their position when it comes to Brexit. Are the Liberal Democrats sort of being forced down that road, too?
4: Well, I think they would argue that actually their election manifesto will be very clear that if a vote for the Liberal Democrats is a vote to revoke Article 50. If the Liberal Democrats don't get a majority, then, of course, the referendum comes back in play because they'll try to work with other, policies to ensure, uh, other parties to ensure that there is a referendum with Remain on the ballot paper.
1: So another criticism has been that the Lib Dems have maybe been a bit lax with the vetting of their new, uh, their new defectors. The likes of Sanjima, Philip Lee have been attacked for their voting record on LGBT. Do you, do you think that's fair? What are their parameters here?
4: Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think the Liberal Democrats are accepting these new MPs after a, a, a relatively rigorous process. Um, Chaka Muna was talking the press through the process now and he said that um, everyone gets grilled by Alistair Carmichael and they get asked about their past views. Um, and certainly, I think I think people will argue that well, there is room for people to change on on their past views. Um, so I, they argue that they're they're welcoming these the new MPs to their party after a thorough vetting process.
2: Okay. Uh- so, look, you're there on the ground in, in Bournemouth. I just want you to give us, I guess, a feel of, w- of what it's like uh, in t- inside the, the Lib Dems. I mean, there's been a lot of enthusiasm around the new leader, Joe Swinson. And, and it sounds like that is coming through, uh, at least in the gathering that you're at at the moment.
4: Uh, yes. I mean, so I only got here this morning, but there's definitely a buzz about the place. Um, and, you know, they're, they're all feeling heartened. You know, they only won 12 MPs at the last election. Uh, but they're 50% up on that without even a general election. Um, so, so they feel like there's momentum behind them. They feel like they have a very clear message on the EU. And I was speaking earlier to Sir Min Campbell, who's a former Liberal Democrat um, leader, and he said, well, if you read the entrails, it's all looking very good for us.
1: Bloomberg's Alex Morais, thank you very much, over at the Lib Dem conference in Bournemouth. I'm interested, Caroline, uh-huh. given you've seen all these defections coming from quite a broad political spectrum... Are the Lib Dems just becoming a single-issue Remain party? Are they forgetting their roots here?
2: Yeah, well, look, there, there is that concern with all of the parties, is there not? That uh, we are in the land of single issues. Uh, you know, Brexit dominates all. I know that, obviously, Mr Johnson has tried to uh, widen things out by talking about police and education and other issues. But if you cannot solve the, the biggest single issue facing the country, what, in 50 years, uh, it's very hard to focus on anything else.
0: Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Uh, And this is the point at which we look uh, a bit deeper into the most thought-provoking pieces in the newspapers today. I know you've all had time uh, to have a look at the front pages Uh, but uh, it was all about Prime Minister, former Prime Minister David Cameron's autobiography.
1: Absolutely I've been devouring this in the Times over the weekend. (laughs) Slices of the autobiography that comes out this Thursday we've had some great lines uh, about Michael Gove, about uh, Boris Johnson, some scathing stuff about Penny Mordant, Priti Patel it's all in there isn't it?
2: Yeah absolutely we're going to get our mitts on the the book actually which comes out of course Mm. on Thursday. Uh, Yeah we have a lot of criticism for a lot of different people. I mean Cameron has managed to stay silent basically for three years and then we also have a TV interview with him this week so I don't know whether that will push things forward after we have had the serialisation obviously in the Sunday Times
1: Yeah and he made those comments about a second referendum feeling likely and all of that so it would be interesting to see if he does get back into the debate but I feel like he won't I feel like this is his opportunity to make his point and then and then we move on. There's some interesting colour in uh, some of the articles today though. He's talking about leaving Downing Street, how he couldn't go back. Samantha, his wife, had to pack up all on her own and then they both started smoking again after all the stress of it.
2: <laughs> smoking, yeah. Uh, look, I pick up on some uh, editorials around uh, Cameron, notably in The Guardian, John Harris writing about uh, how, you know, every Prime Minister is remembered for a big issue and for Cameron, of course it is the referendum and calling the referendum but he's sort of making an argument that it shouldn't be that. It, it, it Cameron should actually be remembered for the austerity policies, uh, that that should be the focus, not, not just Brexit.
1: Yeah. And this was something that went on for such a long time. Of course, it was a fallout from the financial crisis and it kicked off our version of populism, if you like, that we've seen in so many countries around the world. And to an extent, it, it's a valid point because you see some level of causation there, don't you? Um, and what we haven't seen is an end to that, really. You've had a lot of rhetoric that austerity is going to end. Um, Uh, But I think if you talk to a lot of people, they they probably wouldn't agree with that.
2: Yeah, indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, of course, we look ahead to uh, the court decision, the Supreme Court decision, uh, which comes out, or at least... We may hear about it by the end of the week, uh, but uh, the law lords will be sitting on Tuesday. Uh, Noah Feldman on the Bloomberg uh, Terminal, OPIN, his opinion piece is really fascinating about this week's Brexit ruling, uh, You know, looking into, into the Brexit issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is that perennial question, how involved should the courts be in politics? And we have this mechanism of judicial review. There are many who are not too happy about this. We talked last week about the last time we had that big judgment about... Uh, whether MPs should be involved with the decision to trigger Article 50, how the Daily Mail and the press were so against this. It will be fascinating to see what the backlash is if we do get that ruling in the favour of uh, of the campaigners and not of the government.
2: Yeah, indeed. And of course, uh, this uh, after we had the Scottish uh, High Court ruling last week uh, that it was unconstitutional for Prime Minister Boris Johnson to prorogue Parliament. So uh, this will be the, the next leg when the Supreme Court has to decide uh, uh, on exactly you know which court is right. Uh, so uh, that is a little look at the newspapers today, including the opinion pieces to read on the Bloomberg Terminal. But lots more to mention.
1: Yeah, let's get on to our top story, shall we? Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking with Jean-Claude Juncker over lunch today. The European Commission president, of course, he's going to tell him that the UK still plans to leave at the end of next month. Very defiant with that message, as he has been for such a long time. According to the CEO of the Financial Conduct Authority, Andrew Bailey, the authorities are ready, though, for an economic impact. We've seen over the last three years uh, an intensive engagement by the financial services sector, and of course we have as well, and I think that's you know, that stood us in, in, in as good a state as we could be at this point. Uh, as, I, as I've said in, in, in some other remarks I've made, I think con- contingency planning post-financial crisis is in the sort of the, deeply embedded in the DNA both of the sector and of the regulators, frankly. And as I've said recently, there are still outstanding issues, don't get me wrong, but we have made a lot of progress over, over the last three years.
2: Okay, so perhaps time uh, may ease uh, any potential blow from a no-deal Brexit. That was the CEO of the Financial Conduct Authority, Andrew Bailey, who was speaking to bloomberg Television exclusively this morning. I mean, he spoke about a number of issues, mm. uh, but it was the Brexit line that sort of caught our attention when it comes uh, to politics. In our London studio this afternoon is Oliver Patel, who is uh, uh, from the European Institute at the University College London. Uh, very warm welcome to you. Thank you for coming in. I guess uh, I want to to start with the johnson Juncker meeting, the luncheon today. Look, what can we realistically expect? This, as we've been saying, is the first face-to-face meeting between Johnson and Juncker. I mean, is this simply a kind of uh, a spin effort? If so, by whom? And what are they trying to get?
5: Thank you for having me on. Well, it's it's, it's a significant moment politically because obviously it's the first time that Johnson has met one of the EU leaders from, from the institution, so the commission president. I would be cautious of reading too much into this as a very positive move because I saw that the markets, the pound, reacted quite well to the announcement that this meeting was even happening. And I would be cautious because whatever happens today, the EU isn't going to budge from the same fundamental principles which it has stuck to throughout because it views those principles as more important than preventing a no-deal Brexit. So whatever does happen in this meeting, the EU is not going to violate its own fundamental principles and red lines. So, uh, Okay, so yeah. what
2: can the EU do then? I mean, this is about language. Are they even going to say anything that Johnson ca- could bring home a- and claim as a victory i mean even with Theresa May the former prime minister uh, it was very very carefully done wasn't it
5: yeah so i think what the eu could do is perhaps offer further cosmetic changes so perhaps changing some of the language without changing the meaning so
2: but but is that really that's not going to be enough to satisfy <laughs> well, anybody within mr johnson's party is it i
5: don't think so because we're talking a lot about a deal. So will there be a deal? But actually, it's not a deal until it's ratified. So there was this whole hoo-ha about Theresa May getting a deal and then then it was signed, the Commission and the UK government signed the deal and then for months, the deal wasn't being ratified by the UK Parliament. So, you know, maybe Johnson can get a deal from the Commission now. The deal wouldn't violate the EU's fundamental principles and red lines. So you're right to suggest that why on earth would Parliament back it again? Because if it's not going to violate the EU's principles and red lines, then it's not going to be that different from the Theresa May deal. So I would definitely be cautious about getting too optimistic or too excited about these talks and any future deal because even if Johnson does get a new deal from the EU it won't be that different to the old one and it probably won't pass through parliament
1: so Oliver help me out here if the EU isn't going to budge on anything fundamental today mm-hmm. why are they turning up
5: well that's a very good question i mean a lot of it, it a lot of it is to do with the fact that the uk government boris johnson wants to be seen to be trying to get a deal the, the narrative currently is that The UK is going to leave the EU on the 31st of October and we're going to try and get a deal. But if our good friends in the EU um, can't give us the deal that we want, we're going to leave anyway. So perhaps this is part of what could be the future blame game. So Johnson could say, well, we tried to get a deal. They didn't budge and now it's no deal. So it kind of makes it look like The UK tried everything it could and and the EU wouldn't budge. So the the, the UK government, Prime Minister, can't blame the EU for no deal or can't attempt to blame the EU for no deal unless they are seen to actually be trying to get a deal. So if Johnson point-blank refused to meet... Juncker and other EU officials, then there's no way that he could blame them for no deal when people... I mean, okay. obviously... Yeah, so uh, it's
2: who who carries the can. Look, yeah. do you think that there is uh, sentiment amongst the 27 EU members mm-hmm. uh, that is actually now significantly shifting away from this idea of actually even getting a deal with the UK. I mean, which um, countries do you think are most likely to be least bothered by the UK, I guess, leaving uh, the European Union or most prepared now that we're three years down the line and people have had time to to sort of digest the potential fallout?
5: So I think that um, fundamentally the, the EU no EU country, no EU member state, and the EU doesn't want no deal, and no deal is bad for the EU. And for that reason, I think that the EU would continue to grant extensions of Article 50 if, if it were asked. With regards to no deal, I think many member states probably think that they can absorb no deal, and that's why they're not willing to go further and violate the red lines in order to prevent no deal, because I think the EU places the integrity of the single market and maintaining its own legal order as more important than the UK leaving with a deal. However, the, the Ireland is obviously the key player here because no deal is very bad for Ireland and um, a hard border between North and South is also very bad for Ireland. So. I think that you're not going to get any EU member states saying, "Oh, you know, let's just forget about it. Let's just go for No Deal. This is this is getting rich. so." I don't think anyone's going well, to say although that. Although
2: the French side did begin to get hesitant about, an <laughs> yeah, extension. we've had a lot
1: of hard talk from mm-hmm. uh, from other Hungary as well. I mean, are any of these? Is this all talk, or is is somebody going to pull the trigger here and be the rebel among the EU? No, I don't. I don't think anyone will actually do that.
5: If, if France was the, as you said, France was the country that was sort kind of alluding to this the most last time, but we we remember in March that they were doing the exact same thing, and in the end of course, the EU granted an extension because you know if the EU doesn't grant the UK an extension, then you could argue reasonably that it is to blame for No Deal. So I don't think the EU wants to have No Deal on their hands. And however tough the talking gets from France, it's not actually going to. I mean, I'm I'm not saying this logic can be infinite. It's not going to can't go on forever. And then you know there might be a point at which enough is enough. But presumably, if there's an extension this time, it would be for an election. So So very quickly then, can
1: they do the opposite thing and revoke Article 50? Can
5: can the EU do that? No. So the Article 50 can only be revoked by the UK government or, or by the UK, and it can be it can be done so unilaterally. So the court court case that was brought before the European Court of Justice earlier this year, the judges ruled that any member state that wants to leave and triggers Article 50 is allowed to change their mind. So, But the, the EU can't do that. It has to be the UK that does it. So, you, you, you know, what the Lib Dems are talking about now is this, this revoking Article 50. What that means is that, you know, if, if a majority of MPs voted for it, they can instruct the government to do so and then Brexit would be cancelled. Of course, that can't happen after the 31st of October unless Article 50 extend, is extended.
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.